Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks for joining me here. I don't take it for granted. I'm honored to have you on board, and I hope you'll be glad that you signed on. As you know, if you've listened to even one episode of The Right Take, this podcast is devoted mostly to exposing and understanding far-left ideologies and ideas and strategies, and I and my guests talk about terms that have gradually become household names over the last few years, terms like cultural Marxism, gender ideology, uh, wokeness, and so on. And I think all you listeners are knowledgeable and deeply concerned about the politicized madness that's running rampant in our culture, and you keep up with current events. So I don't doubt that you know very well that all of these strategies and ideas and ideologies of the left originated where? That's right, in the universities. Cultural Marxism, critical race theory, critical theory more generally, gender ideology, wokeness, postmodernism, all of this and more originated as intellectual movements in what were formerly known as institutions of higher education. And they filtered out from there into the culture at large, into every institution and arena of the society, so that now it's impossible to escape the left's intentional politicization of every aspect of our civilization. You can't even escape it in arenas that used to be reliable pursuits of escapism, such as the movies or sports. The personal has been made the political to paraphrase that feminist slogan from the 60s and 70s. These institutions of higher indoctrination continue to pump out generation after brainwashed generation of kids who entered the schools as students and graduate from them as social justice activists. If anything, our universities have actually accelerated and intensified their indoctrination to the point at which it's valid to consider whether the entire university system should be dismantled and rebuilt not reformed or reclaimed, but trashed altogether and re-envisioned. And just to give you a few up-to-the-minute examples of the madness that's consumed higher education, let's go to the website campusreform.org. Campus Reform, if you don't know, is a conservative watchdog to the nation's higher education system. It's a team of professional journalists who work along with student activists and student journalists to expose leftist bias on college campuses. To give you a flavor of what's going on on those campuses, let me just read to you a few headlines that are trending at campusreform.org. Here's one. Springfield College in Massachusetts tells students to avoid using terms mother and father. Here's another one. Universities across the United States offering transgender studies certificates. Here's another one. Texas Christian University students will create their own drag personas and perform in Queer Art of Drag course. That's at Texas Christian University. Here's another headline. UNC, that's the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, charges $485 for one-day racial equity course designed to, quote, transform ourselves and our institutions, unquote. Here's another headline. Arizona State University English professor suggests Shakespeare works are racist. And by the way, that professor directs the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. So instead of being led by someone who 
reveres the subjects and the figures of medieval and Renaissance studies and wants to pass that legacy down to the next generation, you have someone in charge of it who perceives it to be her social justice duty to dismantle that and subvert it. That's actually the norm in academia now, actually, is for humanities departments to be led by activists who are seeking literally to undermine and, quote, decolonize, unquote, their own disciplines. Anyway, these are just some of the headlines at campusreform.org that confirm that wokeness is alive and well and flourishing on college campuses and that it's full steam ahead with student indoctrination and the closing of the American mind. Welcome to the dark world of left-wing brainwashing in our universities. And not coincidentally, that happens to be the subtitle of the brand new book whose author I will be speaking with momentarily. He and I are going to do a deep dive into this dark world and explore just what's happening and who's responsible and maybe even what you and I can do about it. So please stay with us here at the intersection of politics and culture. You don't want to miss this discussion. And don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so you don't miss any of the important conversations we are having here. Remember, if you like what you hear, please leave a review. It really helps. We'll be right back with my guest after this rockin' musical interlude. Do not touch that dial. My guest today at the intersection of politics and culture is Dr. Stanley Ridgely. He's a professor of strategic management at Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business. He's got a doctorate and a master's in international relations, security, and in the Soviet Union from Duke University, and an international MBA from Temple University. In other words, methinks no fool. He's a former military intelligence officer who served in West Berlin and near the Czech-German border where he received the George S. Patton Award for Leadership from the 7th Army NCO Academy. He's even done one of those great courses, DVD series, and I love those things. Uh, he's a contributor also to national media like Newsmax and American Greatness and the author of the brand new book, Brutal Minds, The Dark World of Left-Wing Brainwashing in Our Universities. We're going to talk about that today and about what's wrong with higher education, who's responsible, and what we can do about it. Dr. Ridgely, welcome to the Right Take podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here and talking about one of the most important pressing problems facing our nation today, and that's the decline of higher education, who's doing it and what we can do to stop it. I could not agree more with you. It's obvious that you put a lot of your strategic thinking expertise to work in this book. A number of people have written about wokeness in universities and that sort of thing, but I think you dig more deeply into the subject than probably any author I've read. Was there Anything in your own academic or personal experience that led you or inspired you to consider writing this book? What made you want to take this topic on? Well, Mark, it's it's a you know long and, and complex, convoluted story, and I will not not to regale you or your readers with that story of how I came to write this book. Let's just suffice to say that there was a a, a big gap in what we know and what we know in published sources about what indeed is wrong with higher education and why reform seems so far away, why we seem to gain these transient victories only to be back to square one yet again and finding ourselves uh, faced with an intransigent and intractable foe, uh, the, the left, which is getting growing in power, growing in, in, in strength and influence on the college campuses and with no end in sight. And so I said, well, why is this? 
And uh, through a, a lot of research, about six years worth of research, about 2,000 articles and uh, over 150 of books, uh, um, I came to the conclusion, a revelation, if you will, of what was actually happening on the campuses. It's a kind of a structural problem on the campuses that was intentionally created by the, uh, by the left to ensure their uh, imprimatur over the university, to ensure that their influence would increase um, and uh, to, to, to the uh, uh, detriment of college students, alumni, faculty, and, um, and the staff, the, the few staff that are on the campuses that still have a, you know, an independent mind to, to think. And so it was a lot of those things that made me, you know, that brought me to the point of where I've got to write a book on this. And of course, the, the, mo- the uh, uh, impetus for that was the summer of 2020, when I saw the left use the, as, a, as an excuse, the murder of George Floyd uh, as a reason to open the gates for all kinds of noxious uh, ideology, noxious programming, uh, and to race through that, uh, race through that gap uh, to, um, to, to, uh, as, as a kind of an opportunity, a window of opportunity, uh, to impose a whole host of things that had absolutely nothing to do with the, the death of that poor, unfortunate man, uh, George Floyd. And let's, let's talk about the title for a moment, Brutal Minds. Why do you label these, uh, these anti-intellectual intellectuals in the, in the uh, academies Brutal Minds? I, I do that because that's their attitude. These are not nice people. I mean, they come at you with smiles and, uh, you know, uh, sweet words, but really they're, they're not nice people. Um, uh, superficially, I suppose, uh, you know, congenial people on, on a daily basis, but they are ideologically driven, they being the brutal minds. You use the, the term anti-intellectual. I use that in my book as well. It all, it all hinges on how you view the university. Now, you and I, I'm sure, view the university in a similar fashion as a, as a repository of the best that has been thought and said, um, a la you know, Matthew Arnold, and the idea that what we are doing is creating knowledge and we're utilizing logic, reason, progress, um, scientific method uh, as our guide to create knowledge that is something we can rely upon. We've expunged fable and fiction and superstition from the university. We did that many, many uh, centuries ago. Um, And today we're trying to pass on the best that's been thought and said to subsequent generations. Well, the left, the anti-intellectuals, the brutal minds view the university in a very different light. They view it as a crucible of indoctrination, um, the idea that we're going to mold minds for the struggles of the future. Frederick Jameson was a famous uh, Marxist um, who uh, said when I was, he's still alive, but when, when, I, back in, when I was back in, in graduate school at Duke University, he said this, the purpose of the university is to train the cadres for the Marxist struggles of the future. Now, I give him, you know, give him his, as they say, his props for being honest, for his candor. But that's, but that's what they're all about. They're about changing the very character of the university. They don't view it as an arena where these ideas can contend. They view it as they want to change the arena itself so that certain ideas are excluded and only their ideas remain regnant. That's the problem. Yes, you write that one of the characteristics, in fact, the essential characteristic of these brutal minds is their commitment to doing everything they can as fast as they can to destroy the Western canon. Uh, and by, especially by smearing everything they despise as the legacy of white supremacy. Uh, talk a little bit about that. If you why the focus on white supremacy? Well, it's a very effective tool for them. 
anyone who's read Orwell, and most intelligent people think I think have read Orwell, understand the idea of newspeak. And this is uh, loading the language with um, new definitions for familiar words, um, hoping that people will accept the old uh, definition, while you and you mean something in, you know totally different. Um, and so the idea that you're going to utilize, well, you know, white supremacy, certainly there it exists. There is a white supremacist viewpoint, I suppose. And, you know, good luck trying to find an actual white supremacist on, you know, in America today. Uh, that, that's the problem. By tarring or moving up the what I call the ladder of, of abstraction and creating this, this devil term, white supremacy, and that everything you don't like is nestled under this term. And that you, of course, you know, if you believed in angels, the angels would be on your side. You know, you you stand against white supremacy. Who stands with me against white supremacy? Well, of course, everyone stands with you against white supremacy. But we all have a, a different understanding of what that can what that uh, entails. For them, everything is white supremacy. Everything is systemic racism. Everything is a problem of privilege. Uh, and this all stems from neo-Marxism uh, and critical theorists. Uh, Frankfurt School, um, the idea that you're going to tar everyone as having false consciousness. And if, you know, this is just another one of their euphemisms for the idea that I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, I have critical consciousness. You have false consciousness. Uh, I'm an ally. You're an enemy. I'm, I'm the oppressed. You're the oppressor, that kind of thing. And so it's a very primitive mindset. It's a very primitive ideology. And it goes all the way back to Mani and the idea of Manichaeism, the idea of good and evil, the light and the dark, and everyone is going to be loaded into one of those categories. Uh, you're either a, a racist or an anti-racist. You're either a, uh, an oppressor or an oppressed. You're either exploited or exploited. Good, evil, heretic, believer. Uh, it's, it's very primitive. And what's really alarming to me is that this kind of primitivism is, is making its way into the academy and it's finding its way into the bureaucracy and being imposed on faculty, staff, students alike. Um, whether they, they want to, to be categorized this way or not. And these brutal minds, they claim to be champions of what they like to call marginalized voices in society, but they seem to be passionately committed to marginalizing, even demonizing the voices of those who represent their opponents, the oppressors. Uh, but they're, so they're not really champions of tolerance and inclusion, are they, but of totalitarianism, actually. Well, they're not. They're not tolerant at all. And uh, this idea of the marginalized voice has gotten a lot of uh, mileage. I mean, who who's marginalized these days? These so-called marginalized voices are Twitter celebrities. They're feted. They're given they're given grants. You get uh, someone like Ibram Kendi, who is uh, his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, made him a multimillionaire. He charges something like 20,000 bucks for 45 minute talk. He received a 10 million dollar grant to establish a, a center of some sort up at Boston College, I believe. See the Boston College of Boston University. Um, and so the, he's a marginalized voice. We can't get away from him. Hardly, that's hardly the definition of marginalized. You can't escape it. Um, and, and so, but the I, the real marginalized voices are the are the poor faculty and uh, my colleagues, uh, and they're not even necessarily conservative. They're just good, you know, good traditional liberals trying to do the right thing on the campus, teach, you know, do their research, teach their classes, follow the scientific method, and and. They're, they're blindsided again and again by the by the uh, so-called woke left. When they, woke, by the way, is means they have achieved what they call critical consciousness, which is a neo-Marxist, crypto-Maoist term for their state of mind. And so they kind of, for short form, 
woke. Um, so the, the, the poor marginalized people are the folks who are uh, on the campus who keep just keep their heads down, just trying to draw a paycheck and make it to retirement because the world around them is changing according to the dictates of a tiny, radical, shrill minority. Um, and um, uh, it's, it's an unfortunate situation, but it's something I think we can do something about as I, as I detail in Brutal Minds. Let's talk about the process a little bit. The word brainwashing is one that gets thrown around a lot among conservatives about the indoctrination that goes on in our educational system. But you explore that in some really interesting depth in your book. Can you talk a little bit about the process of brainwashing that goes on in colleges and universities and how and why it works so effectively among students and actually not just students, but among staff and faculty too, for that matter? Well, certainly can. Brainwashing uh, was created, originated with uh, uh, Kurt Lewin, who was an MIT so, uh, social psychologist uh, back in the 1940s. He is known as the father of the encounter group. He created a process that he called re-education. He's the guy who coined the, the idea of re-education. And he addressed the problem of criminality. And he would target criminals with this process of re-education by attacking their sense of identity, breaking it down, uh, changing their belief system, and then refreezing uh, their new belief system that he had replaced it with uh, in activities designed to prevent backsliding. So it's a process of unfreezing, changing, and refreezing, focusing on the belief system. Well, on the college campuses, let me interject, I should say that the communist Chinese followed this process very well. And you can read about that in uh, social psychologist Edgar Schein's book, uh, Coercive Persuasion, from the early 1960s. Well, college campuses today, college uh, educators today, and here I refer to anyone teaching social justice education or transformative education, utilize this very same brainwash process. Now, they don't call it brainwashing, of course. No, these people are not the brightest, but they're certainly not stupid. They're not going to say, well, you know, come into our classroom. We're going to brainwash you. We're going to attack your sense of identity. We're going to change your belief system, replace it one we think that you need to have. And then we're going to uh, have you do the work so that you can refreeze this new belief system. No, they're not going to say that. But anyone teaching what's called social justice education or transformative education is engaged in the brainwash. Um, I can give you a, a quote. I give you the three the three stages of unfreezing, changing, and refreezing. Uh, the terminology changes on occasion, but the actual fundamental process does not change at all. Um, the, uh, now, we live in the United States where the, we have these pesky individual rights, which means that there has to be a degree of you know, deception, deception involved in brainwashing someone. And so what we do, and here's, let me quote a little bit from a brainwash manual. They, they actually, they publish articles and publish manuals on this, how to do it. This one is called Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice by Marianne Adams, uh, Leanne Bell, and Pat Griffin. And this comes from uh, chapter four. Here's a quote of the three stages of the brainwash. Uh, quote, use low-risk self-disclosure and interaction in the early stages to establish a norm of self-disclosure at the outset. If the environment is perceived as supportive, a person's defenses may be more permeable. That's part of the deception phase. Then the first phase, which is unfreezing, they call this defending. During this phase, students undergo, quote, challenges to their belief system, 
in an environment that is supportive and trustworthy, designed to throw them off their off their guard. The process of actually changing a belief system is really kind of kind of uh, uh, stark here. Now listen to this quote: Students are presented social justice theory. The process is quote confusing, disorienting, frightening. Students can feel out of control, without known boundaries or familiar ground. They may experience strong emotions such as anger resentment, a sense of betrayal by those who were supposed to tell them the truth about the social world, end quote. Now, I'll leave that to you and your listeners as to whether that constitutes a, a psychological manipulation and behavior modification and pressure to change the belief system. Um, and the, the final phase of you know, refreezing is called, they call this transforming. Here's a quote. A new set of beliefs becomes home base for interpreting experience and creating meaning the past is reinterpreted and reconstructed into a new frame of reference, end quote. That's pretty uh, manifest right there on its face. It's, 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 uh, it's the brainwash, pure and simple. Uh, and if anyone ever says, hey, well, we don't have brainwashing on the college campuses, I point them to the four editions of Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, as well as several other brainwash manuals that clearly target vulnerable students and try to dislodge their their belief system they, they bring from home and replace it with one that is more salutary and more in line with crypto Maoist um, uh, education theory. So that is in essence, in essence is the brainwash. And uh, I, in another segment, I can go on and talk about who actually is doing it on the college campuses. I, I name names and I name places in the book of Brutal Minds. And so you can see for yourself, it's, it's about 70 percent um, citing their own articles and their own books of how they go about doing this and who they're doing it to. Yeah. And the brainwashing doesn't happen just inside the classroom, does it? What, what about outside the classroom? You, you write about, have you got a chapter about uh, this kind of co-curriculum, uh, which you say explicitly attempts to create a total milieu that students cannot escape where they live, where they sleep, where they eat, where they choose to socialize. Uh, how does that contribute to the brainwashing? Well, once we understand that the brainwashing is being uh, uh, is being practiced on the college campus, we can ask the question, who's doing it? Most people think it's faculty. Well, we only have students in the classroom, you know, three to four hours per week. The rest of that time, if the student is staying on the campus, is um, uh, crafted by what is called student affairs professionals. And these are almost all, these are folks who walk lockstep ideologically with crypto-Maoist education theory that they learned in education. They are the ones running a fake curriculum filled with fake courses, fake faculty on every college campus. It's called the co-curriculum. And you can find this on almost any website. You just have to know what to look for, what to, to understand what the terminology is that there's being used. When we see the term co-curriculum, understand that it has really nothing to do with the faculty except in rare instances, rare occasions. Mainly it is taught by master's degreed people from education schools who have been imbued with this doctrine, um, this, this Maoist Frarian doctrine. I, I mentioned the word Frarian intentionally. It's Paolo Frarian doctrine grounded in Marxism, the Marxism of Henry Giroux, Michael Apple, Ira Shore, Paulo Freire, these are all icons who teach in the education school, rather who, whose work is taught in the education schools. Uh, and they're all self-admitted Marxists. They, they're proud of that. And so the, the theory that is taught to these folks is indeed neo-Marxist. These folks take it. They come back into the, um, the graduates, come back into the, 
the bureaucracies, and they form what is called the co-curricula. I really encourage people to go to the website of most any college, probably your alma mater would be a good choice, to look up the term co-curriculum. And you will find a lot of tofu, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, uh, soy that, that doesn't really mean anything, kind of rhetorical soybeans. Uh, but what is being taught behind the facade of this student development and student affairs, student learning, is actually um, the material that is... Uh, part and parcel of the, of the brainwash, crypto Maoist education theory, and um, basically crit critical race theory. We're all familiar with that. Um, and so the, the, this is why the, there's kind of an incredible sameness about what is being taught across the country on every college campus, uh, because it's all sourced from the same places, and that is education schools. That is the source of so many of our problems in, in education today. Hmm. And what about students or faculty members who resist the brainwashing and the indoctrination? How are they dealt with? Well, I have an entire chapter on what's called student resistance. Now, these students are usually well-grounded, intellectual, intellectually solid, uh, inquisitive, critical thinkers who don't go along with the brainwash. And when I say the brainwash, and I talk about these co-curricular activities, I'm talking about one side of the story being presented. And it's usually a uh, oppressor, oppressed, exploiter, exploited uh, narrative. People who don't disagree, I'm sorry, people who don't agree with this characterization are marked as resistant. They are marked as resistors. They're tar targeted for uh, special attention. Um, and what happens to these students um, when they're taught by faculty, the handful of faculty who deal in this kind of thing, they um, uh, are faced with additional challenges. Um, to their, to their belief system. They're faced with, you know, they're having to do better work, more work, more sources, uh, justify their positions. If you simply agree with what the professor or more often the facilitator is saying, you'll find you have a very easy row to hoe. If you don't accept it, no matter how uh, substantial your rebuttal, no matter how well documented, um, you are simply, ver uh, um, I should say, uh, identified as a problem for the professor or as a problem for the facilitator. Because what we're engaged in here with this brainwashing is not this exchange, you know, this yeasty exchange of ideas, marketplace of ideas. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is an indoctrination, a transferal of a particular ideology from the professor or from the facilitator to the students. And if you are resistant to this, well, then you're marked as a, quote, classic resistor. And you're uh, you're marked uh, to receive additional attention. Um, this is, I should say, basically uh, the characteristics of uh, conspiracy theorists, because uh, most of these folks are indeed conspiracy theorists, because one of the chief characteristics of a conspiracy theory, when they're trying to get you, the student, to believe in the conspiracy, is if you resist, that becomes evidence that you are of the conspiracy. If you happen to be a white student, you don't want to be characterized as a white oppressor simply by virtue of birth. Well, then you have identified yourself as having false consciousness. You're part of the problem and you have demonstrated that part of the problem uh, with by your complicity in the uh, white supremacy that you mentioned earlier, Mark. So it's a it's, it's a really interesting dynamic we have going on here, and this is why I wanted to tear the shroud of secrecy off that, that dynamic and reveal it to, to more people. Yeah, very interesting. You've come up with a number of interesting concepts in this book that I don't think I've ever seen 
any other author address or work with. The Iron Triangle, for example, is one in Cerberus. Uh, Cerberus, of course, is the three-headed or multi-headed beast guarding the gates of the underworld in classical mythology, but you use it to refer to a sort of subversive bureaucratic structure. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the Iron Triangle and Cerberus? Well, yeah, uh, the, most everyone, I think, in, in, in basic political science understands the Iron Triangle as it refers to Washington, D.C. and our, and our uh, government, and that's how you get things done not the three branches of government, but it's really, it's really the Congress, interest groups, and uh, lobbies, that kind of thing. And that's how you get things done. And what, well, in, in the higher education field, the Iron Triangle consists of education schools, student affairs bureaucracies, and off-campus professional clubs. In this case, there are two of them. One is the uh, ACPA and the other is the NASPA, N-A-S-P-A. They form a triangle of bureaucracy that ensures that universities are impervious to any kind of meaningful long-term reform. Let me explain. Education schools were taken over many, many years ago, I would say two decades, at least two decades ago, by Frarian Maoist uh, ideology. The chief theorists of education schools in this branch of, of, of theory were all self-described Marxists, Michael Apple, Henry Giroux, Paulo Freire, Ira Shore, uh, names that are not familiar to the average person but are revered by education school people. Education folks, education school folks wanted to have an influence on the rest of the university, but no one would pay any attention to them because, quite frankly, they're the bottom feeders of, of, of higher education. Uh, education schools are considered, you know, they're the, uh, I call this the bottom of the barrel. So education schools figured out how to uh, emerge from their cocoon or their barrel and exert influence. They created graduate school programs in student affairs, higher education management, education leadership. And they graduated people from these programs, knowing nothing except this Frarian uh, leftist ideology, and put them right back into the college campuses in positions called student, uh, student affairs, positions created just for them, where they created this co-curriculum that I mentioned earlier, where they could teach fake courses, fake classes, they'd be fake professors and that sort of thing, uh, and confuse students as to what they're actually, you know, are these really courses or, or, or what? Um, the third element of this was the off-campus clubs called ACPA and NASPA, the professional associations. Um, they became repositories and keepers of the ideology. These organizations are so permeated with um, Frarian uh, ideology, Maoist ideology, that it's unbelievable unless you actually read some of the material. They're conferences, they publish books, they have articles, they have, they have fake journals. Um, and But what's, what's most important is, and because you're asking yourself, well, why is this important for higher education? It's important for this particular reason. These off-campus groups set the standards for the graduate programs in higher education, education schools. So you have this link, this, this circle of vice, where you have education schools graduating people into the student affairs bureaucracy, who then participate in the off-campus clubs, the ACPA and the NASPA, which then establish standards for the education schools. And so this is why we've got these, the steady pipeline of, you know, mediocre people uh, graduating from these programs, going into the universities, where they then create even more positions, they increase the number of, of, of bureaucrats that are administering the co-curriculum. I think you saw this in the example of Stanford University, where you've got almost 15,000 bureaucrats administering 
15,000 students. This is, this, is, this is administrative blow. That's what we mean by that. Um, well, there's, a, there's a, a reason for it. There's a rhyme, you know, a reason and a mode to it where it's not just the numbers that matter. It's the influence, it's the power and the ideology that is transforming the university. I should say one of these off-campus clubs, the ACPA, their motto is this, boldly transforming higher education. Well, no one asked them to change higher education. What are they changing it from and what are they changing it to? Uh, and, and this boldly transforming or transformative uh, process has been going on now for quite some time. And Brutal Minds tells how it's been going on and what we can do to stop it. really likes terms like fundamental transformation, don't they? They, they like this concept of completely uh, raising the old um, institutions and values to the ground and building utopia on top of the ashes, don't they? Well, yeah, they, um, you know, they believe in change for the sake of change. They're always, you know, they're leading for change is one of their big, one of their big slogans. We ask, they never ask you, they never ask themselves and we never stop to ask, well, what are you trying to change and why are you trying to change it? I think it was Russell Kirk, the, the, the uh, grand um, uh, philosopher of, of conservatism said, when it's not necessary to change, it's necessary not to change. And that's um, an important insight for us to, to, to I think the status quo gets a bad rap for the most part, uh, and it's automatically, and someone who wants to change the status quo automatically achieves a halo. And so we have to ask, well, what's the status quo that you're trying to change, and why do you want to change, and what do you want to change it to? I should say that something that, that, that uh, most people probably don't realize, when I mentioned Kurt Lewin earlier, who came up with the term you know, re-education to identify his brainwashing uh, his brainwashing techniques, that term gained uh, notoriety, I think. Most everyone understands that. And in the 1990s, the educationists changed the process, the name of the process, from re-education to transformative education. So when you hear the, isn't that interesting? So when you hear the term transformation or fundamental transformation or transformative education, that's what they're referring to. They were referring to re-education programs to bring students into the university and to transform them uh, for the tr struggles of the future. They're not educating them. They're not providing them with the best that has been thought and said. No, they're indoctrinating them with a, a very strict, a very cramped ideology that was, quite frankly, much of which was debunked many, many years ago. Um, so that's an interesting part. of Another part of the, uh, that's interesting, I find, is that the communist Chinese, they are still running this type of program and have been for many, many years. They've refined it. They have changed the name of it from re-education to, their term is, education for transformation. So you can see this parallel. Uh, I'm sure it's unintentional, but there's this parallel between the coercive uh, nations of the earth that utilize these this type of brainwash in, in conjunction with uh, coercion, physical coercion, North Korea, uh, Cuba, uh, Nicaragua in the olden days. And then, of course, you've got uh, the old Soviet Union and now communist China, um, that it's uh, kind of a it is kind of a similarity, a family resemblance uh, that uh, links them all together. All of this process and this ideology that you're talking about really sounds like just a, a hugely widespread and extremely effective cult. I mean, this, this sounds all extremely cultish. Wouldn't you describe it that way? 
I would most certainly would describe it that way. And what's interesting is that Richard Delgado, who is a figure that is forever linked to critical race theory, in his previous incarnation as a lawyer, he was working on uh, examining the free speech rights of cults. And, and he did a really big um, investigation into how cults recruit folks. And um, it's very similar to what we find going on on the college campuses in terms of deceiving young people, to getting them to put them at their ease, to um, get them to make themselves vulnerable. This is this this is their words. Make themselves vulnerable to uh, uh, reveal their personal lives, reveal uh, secrets about their family, to engage in self-disclosure. I mentioned this a little bit earlier uh, in our discussion about how it is a key factor, it's a key element of the brainwash is to get students to feeling like they can trust uh, you and what you're saying and what we're doing in this. And so, and so there's this constant, um, there's a constant refrain of getting you to, uh, to trust your classmates, to trust me, to make yourself vulnerable, to feel that this is a safe space. Well, this is all part of the brainwash, getting you to reveal information about yourself that can then be used against you. And this is exactly what cults do to, um, to recruit young people. There's an incredible parallel. I think that you can, you'll find this in the, the lingo. The Unification Church, or the Moonies, have as one of their mantras. Uh, they're always advocating for peace and unity. Well, this sounds eerily similar to inclusion and belonging, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, I don't, I, it's, it's a, it is a race, or it's, it's a toss-up, I should say, as to which of, the, of those two cult mantras are, is more effective. Peace and unity? For the Moonies or inclusion and belonging for the DEI people on, on the college campuses. So there's a great deal of, of similarity. And I, I go into depth about the, the similarity between cult recruitment uh, and uh, the, the cult um, elements, the elements of the, the modern cult and how it resembles what's going on on the college campuses with regard to the brainwashing processes in the co-curriculum. And of course, all this doesn't end with the universities, I mean, the end game for the left is to pump out generation after generation of brainwashed students who will then uh, exit the universities and infiltrate literally every arena and institution of the culture and society and transform, you know, perform this fundamental transformation uh, out in the world. So it's it, it, it it's beyond just the university walls and uh, transforms the entire culture. And I think the left realized that long ago, decades ago, I think the, you know, the far left began to recognize that marching in the streets and bombing buildings wasn't as effective as they thought it would be. And so they decided to infiltrate the institutions of education and uh, change things from within. So you have someone like uh, Barack Obama's mentor, Bill Ayers, who went from being a weather underground member to being one of the most respected educators in the country. So the, uh, so the left really did realize early on that education is where it all begins, didn't they? Yeah, the, uh, the left, um, one of the gurus of the left, Herbert Marcuse, a uh, member of the Frankfurt School and a Marxist, um, he didn't coin the phrase. He repeated it from Rudy Dutschke, who was a, uh, German, a German activist. Uh, the term was, or the phrase was, uh, that they were going to engage in a long march through the institutions. We've heard of this, uh, and what it means is there's going to be a long-term uh, subversion of America's institutions, and and uh, to when I say infiltrate, I'm referring to filling the bureaucracies with um, allies um, who want to change the bureaucracies, who want to change the institutions into something that's more uh, salutary with respect to Marxist ideology. Um, I should say that 
in much of my research I've found, and I, have, I include this in Brutal Minds, is that these folks who are taught to, you know, your job is to keep the pizza hot in the sound system working on karaoke night. You know, you're supposed to make sure that students are healthy, housed, uh, and fed. Um, your job is nothing beyond that. Well, these, these guys, uh, these student affairs folks, folks in education schools, uh, have gone way beyond this. They actively advocate uh, subverting the institutions of which they are a part. They actually advocate going beyond the actual responsibilities for which you're hired. So you hire someone who's going to do just that, make, you know, set up cornhole competitions, make sure the sound system works, make sure the pizza's hot, that sort of thing. And then this person, suddenly you find this person is engaged in their idea of transforming the university. Suddenly this person is speaking out. This person is acting beyond his or her, um, uh, mandate. This person is running workshops in the co-curriculum, which are sanctioned by other folks in the co-curriculum. Uh, and so there's this activist idea, the idea that you're going to go beyond what your, your official position um, allows you to do, mandates that you do, and you're going to create new functions to transform the university into something that is more in line with the ideology that you learned back in, back in education school. So yeah, it's, it's a it's a it's a beast, if you will. I mentioned the uh, you mentioned Cerberus and the idea of the three headed dog. It's a three dog with three heads, but only one body. And the idea that you've got all of these people are all part of the same problem, but they have the three heads of, of identity. I hear lots of conservatives say that these institutions, these universities and colleges, are so hopelessly lost, uh, and. Thus, rather than try to reclaim higher education, we should just build our own parallel network of colleges and universities that offer classical curricula and that promise to reject wokeness. Uh, but in your conclusion, you offer a strategy of of changing the current university system through what you call resistance, rollback, and renewal. Can you talk a little bit about that strategy? Well, well sure. I, I agree with you uh, 100% that, that uh, you know, creating alternative institutions is always a viable option. Um, because if you're creating a good product, people are going to flock to you. Um, but that doesn't really help the parents and students of, who are in college today or paying exorbitant tuition, hoping for, that, hoping for that good college education, only to find it sabotaged by folks in student affairs or the co-curriculum or the, the handful of activist professors who are engaged in, in indoctrination. I should say that the vast majority of my colleagues are not doing that sort of thing. They don't have time for it. That's not why they entered academia. There is, however, a small group of people who are in the faculty who indeed do do it. So how can a student guarantee that he or she can receive that college education? I, I lay out a program of resistance and renewal, whereby students can uh, armor themselves with information and the knowledge of their individual rights, and of course, what the constraints are on the student affairs bureaucrats who have exceeded their authority, and in some cases, are moving into the realm of quasi-legal, sometimes illegal behavior with regard to applying these types of psychological um, techniques onto students. You're asking yourself, well, isn't this kind of thing illegal? The answer to your question is, yeah, yeah, pretty much so. Um, and, and what students can do is to simply document and get ensure that the uh, professor or more likely the facilitators are engaged in proper procedure, because if they're engaging in proper procedure, they probably will not would not be allowed to be performing these types of brainwashing functions. Uh, I lay out specifically a program whereby students and parents can 
can uh, defend themselves, can ensure that they're going to get that education they're paying for. I also revealed the actual per- perception that uh, college administrators have of parents. And it's usually, it's not a very pretty sight. Um, parent, they want, they, the administrators want parents to simply, you know, write the check and drop their kids off and then let us have them for the next four years. And then you'll be wondering what the heck happened. And you paid for it. Think about that for a second. You paid for all this anger and alienation um, when you didn't know that that's what was going to happen because we pretty much kept it secret. And so I think that secrecy is the problem here with a lot of this. And I think I tear the shroud of the secrecy away from these people. And once they're exposed, I think that parents and students have a very good idea of how, you know, just basically in the moment they can deal with that sort of thing. But right now, parents and students don't realize that this type of thing is going on. They're being deceived intentionally and uh, information is being kept from them. It's being kept from me, I should say. Getting a handle on a lot of this stuff on the college campus is is like pulling teeth because secrecy is their mode. And their and their, their common their common response is, oh, we don't want anything to be taken out of context. Um, <laughs> as, as you know, you add all the context you want to it. It's what I say, and I, I provide lots and lots of context in in brutal minds. So, yes, you do, and I. I... I'm pleased to see that uh, you do expose a lot of what goes on. I think a lot of parents need to see this uh, and they need plans like uh, and strategies like the ones you offer to, as you put it, disrupt and dismantle the Cerberus. So I, I think that's one of the great things about this book. In your conclusion, you encourage people to be courageous like Czech dissident Václav Havel. For those who don't remember much about Havel or are too young to know who he is. Can you expound a little bit on the kind of courage that he exhibited and that we should emulate? Well, Vaclav Havel was a, a Czech playwright back in the in the 70s. Well, I'm sure it was more than the 70s, but this is the time, period of time he was well known. Um, he wrote a, a famous essay called The Power of the Powerless, in which he exposed um, the uh, the folks that had to live within the lie. He exposed the system that required people to behave in ways that they knew were not authentic. They knew were part of the lie, but they behaved that way so they could simply get along and not get into into trouble. He gives the story of the greengrocer who puts a sign in his window because he has to. And the sign says, workers of the world unite. And he doesn't know what the, the term means. He just knows he has to put it in the window or he'll be disciplined in some way. And I just pictured his sign saying, diversity is our strength or inclusion and belonging because someone told him to sign in the window and he knew that he would get in trouble if he didn't comply. And I think that's what a a lot of this nonsense that's going on is simply people just trying to go along and get along, keep my head down. I don't want trouble with these, well, with these troublemakers. Um, These people are going to be these anonymous snitches who are going to, you know, call, call on, uh, report on me to uh, to some institution. Well, that's Vaclav Havel's uh, uh, point, was that to all of us must take a stand at some point to show courage and stop living within this lie uh, and to call, call it out, to call that lie out every chance we get. And the more and more people that you have calling out the lie, uh, the sooner the lie will be uh, will be banished. And I think that that's what a lot of what's going on on the college campuses uh, is basically people living within a lie because they just don't want the trouble that it could, could lead to if they actually say what they know to be the truth. Ronald Reagan, 
who said, you know, many years ago, he said, don't be afraid to see what you see. And that's one of those phrases. What, what does he mean by that? Well, then think about it. Don't be afraid to see what you see. Um, and it, it kind of it's kind of a, a modern take on the uh, the uh, emperor's new clothes and the kid who refused to live live within this lie and continue to lie with everyone else and say, well, the emperor doesn't have any clothes. And that's what's going on right now with a lot of this nonsense. And people are too afraid um, to to speak out, afraid of what might it do to their to their uh, their living, might do to their daily existence. They might lose a few friends here or there, but someone has to do it. And I think that's what I, what's, uh, Vaclav Havel was saying in his, in, his, uh, in his famous essay. Yes, and courage is contagious. So if a few of us stand up, it will empower more people to stand up, and then, uh, uh, and then the resistance becomes stronger. Uh, Stan, what is the best way for people to keep up with what you're doing and where you're doing it? Well, uh, my website is called BrutalMinds.com. That's one word, BrutalMinds.com. And uh, it kind of is kind of a compendium of my writings. And it's also a place where you can order Brutal Minds. You can order Brutal Minds at Amazon, of course. Brutal Minds uh, rhymes with noodle, but it's not spelled the same way. It's Brutal, B-R-U-T-A-L, Brutal Minds. And um, the dark world of, of left-wing brainwashing in our universities. You can also get it at Barnes & Noble. Um, and, uh, I tell you what, if I had my druthers and I, I don't, but if I had my druthers, I'd put a copy of brutal minds in the hands of every graduating high school student in America today with the promise, of course, they'd have to read it. And if they were to do that, I think there'd be a sea change in what was going on on the college campuses. When, the, when that edition or that generation of students who went onto the college campuses armed with the information and armed with the revelations provided in brutal minds, when that generation arrived on campus, boom, suddenly the power will be stripped away from the brainwashers and there would be a sea change in, in what we uh, see coming out. We have an awful lot of stuff to read about in the press as the, uh, as the Cerberus and, and the folks in student affairs began to react badly, badly to it. But that's my hope. That's my hope that we can, we can see a sea change in the universities within uh, the next couple of years. Yes, mine too. Listeners, I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of Stanley Ridgely's book, Brutal Minds. There are lots of books out there about the Marxist infiltration of higher education, but this very smart book covers ground that I bet you've never come across before, because I did, and this is a topic that I've been following and writing about for years and years. Stan Ridgely, thanks for giving us your time and your insights today at the Right Take Podcast. Thanks so much. I do appreciate the opportunity, Mark. Keep up your search for the good, the true, and the beautiful, okay? Likewise. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Just another reminder to subscribe to The Right Take so you don't miss any of the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review. Thanks, and see you next time. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.